Wow, that was uh, fantastic. Um, I always enjoy, always enjoy praising the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, some of the songs that we've chosen to be part of uh, our worship experience um, has uh, definitely led us to a place where we can step into his presence this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of uh, Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be jumping right into it. Um, I really want to try to get done in a more timely manner today so that we can have time for... Um, uh, so we can have time for the business meeting without in interrupting our Sunday school hour uh, too much. So I encourage you guys to um, to follow along. We're gonna uh, we're gonna be as swift as we can, but also as thorough. And honestly, if you really want to to go deeper into this, you really need to be here as much as you can in in person, um, so that you can be part of our Sunday school afterwards. Because in many ways, it's during those times that we have an opportunity to really dive a little deeper into some of the important things um, that God wants uh, us to know in this. So I'm going to do my very best to try to break this down as, as succinctly as possible. Um, but, you know, we have less than 40 minutes and um, uh, we have to get through 49 verses. Um, that's a lot of verses to be able to get through in a single um, in a single go uh, for the time frame that we have. I really should take uh, I really should take two or three weeks going over this, but um, in interest of time and how we're moving forward, I think it's best that we uh, we attempt to do this in one week and one Sunday, and we'll try to do this. So I'm going to go as swift as possible. So basically, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to be reading and 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 uh, discussing it as we go until we get to the main part of the text, because um, there are many things that we need to discuss in this, but uh, most of us try to get to the dream part as quickly as possible, but I think there's some things leading up to that we need to have uh, some understanding of. So, we'll just dive right into it. Chapter 2, starting in the first verse, um, is where we um, we begin. So, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So, we're right there in the very beginning, very first verse, um, and we already have some controversy. So Surprise, surprise, surprise. Um, in, the second ver in the first verse, it says the second year of his reign. Well, everybody that's, that's keeping track of their, uh, their kingly calendars will know, wait a minute now, this is probably the third year of his reign. Um, why are we saying it's his second year? Well, I'll tell you why. Because um, while the book is written um, primarily by a Hebrew, um, a good portion of this book was written in Aramaic. In fact, starting in verse 4 of this chapter, or going all the way to chapter 7, to the end of chapter 7, um, the book is written in Aramaic. Um, and so there are, um, there are issues there. Plus, the person that's writing this happens to be Daniel. Daniel is the chief executive, becomes the chief executive of three different empires, um, and more particularly the empire of Nebuchadnezzar that is using the primary language of Aramaic uh, to speak in. And uh, so because of that, he is using, Daniel is using, the calculations of, of a kingly reign based upon the uh, Babylonian timescale, which they don't count the first year as the first year. That's his ascension year. His first full year is um, the, his actual second year, and then his third year would be his second year. Um, and so we see that um, reflected here. So it says, now in the second year, which is really the third year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled. Um, I, I always love reading that, but in all the versions, it just, it, it makes it sound so very, oh, he just, he struggled. He had a little, he had a little bad dream. Maybe it was, um, maybe it was something a little bit, uh, maybe it was uh, indigestion or something, but, but it was more than that. Um, in fact, um, we're talking about the word spirit there. The, the word spirit there is, is, is the word ruha in, in, in the Hebrew, and we know this is still Hebrew at this point. 
Um, and that means uh, that means mind or spirit. It's the seat of intellectual understanding. Basically, for the for the for, for all intents and purposes, Nebuchadnezzar was struck um, in a very profound and deep way to his very core. Um, we've all had bad dreams. Uh, we've all had moments where we woke up in a in a cold sweat, and and maybe we remember what the dream was. Maybe we don't. Um, but either way, we've all had those moments in our life where that's happened, and we sat up and we're like, oh my goodness. And and once that adrenaline starts kicking and we start pumping. Um, I don't know about you, but I never really can go fully back to sleep again after that um, because it's just it's just part of what the body does. And so whatever it was, um, this was pretty troubling to the king the king Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why was this dream so troubling? Well, there's a lot of reasons. We're going to get to it in a little bit. Um, but the biggest reason is you have to understand that um, in the people that lived in that day, Nebuchadnezzar included, is a polytheistic, multi-god community. Um, they all had these um, they had these ideas and expectations that the gods, we use little g's, um, uh, the gods would speak to mankind through dreams and visions. And so it was important to be able to take these things uh, to heart. Now some theologians actually speculate that Nebuchadnezzar was um, uh, was given these dreams over successive ni- nights in, in uh, so it was more than just one dream, it was sort of like a combination of maybe two or three. We don't know um, because it doesn't. It, it just, just doesn't tell us. Um, but some of the wording there is a little ambiguous and it gives a little more latitude because it says I had dreams and so it's a plural um, so that's where they get that I'm not I don't think it really matters how many dreams the Nebuchadnezzar had to make this um, what matters is, is that his spirit was troubled and to the point where he just couldn't sleep and almost where he was fearful to sleep and that leads him to the next uh, the next uh, next thing where it says in verse 2 and the king gave orders to call the magicians the conjurers the sorcerers the Chaldeans um, to tell the king the his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So here we got we have um, we have one two three four um, four job descriptions that are here. And I know in King James version you may have some different uh, uh, different wordage. Some of the other translations may not word it the same way. But the New American Standard really has the in many, in many ways the best translations of um, these four job descriptions. These are individual jobs that would have been um, that would have made up the, um, the 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 team of advisors um, that the king had. And you have magicians. That were like the scribes. They were the um, uh, they were the folks that were um, uh, into the into the studying the histories and the texts. Um, that's typically what that uh, job description was. You had the conjurers, which is typically the alchemists and the individuals who uh, mess around with chemistries and potions and things like that. Um, you have sorcerers that were basically diviners. Um, these were the occultic individuals that would appeal to the gods. Not really priests, but more um, what we would what we would think about when you think of a of a, of a middle uh, middle ages um, uh, uh, magician, somebody that um, would conjure or speak to devils or things like that in the dead. We see this happening in the Old Testament, um, specifically when uh, the King Saul went to speak to um, uh, the witch Vendor, which is the same basic word that's being used here. Um, and then you have uh, the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, um, in some versions, it says astrologers. The Chaldeans were really the um, um, were the the mental powerhouses of the advisor corps. Um, these are the people that really were were educated in the sciences, um, astrology, the movement into the stars. Um, they had a high emphasis on mathematics and other areas. 
and yeah, these are the truly brilliant individuals that um, that would sort of be the mouthpieces for the other three. And we see that being played out in um, this particular court um, scene. Um, and it's interesting when we get to we get this. There's a lot of a lot of things if you really break it down. Um, uh, into the original languages. It's just incredible. Um, and then, so verse 3, the king said to them, um, I had a dream, and my spirit was, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. If you look back in verse 1, when it says his spirit was troubled, um, another way of translating that, which would be incredibly accurate, was, was my mind or my spirit was struck dumb. I mean, it was just smacked in the head. Uh, my British friends would say gobsmacked. Um, it was just it was just a powerful moment. And he said, I'm anxious. I need to know what this dream says. So the Chaldeans, um, the, the, the in the mouthpieces, would say to the king, and, and this is where it begins the language of Aramaic, which was the courtly language that is pretty much recorded from here all the way to the end of chapter 7. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic and said, Oh, king, live forever. Tell Oh, King Lifford, they're basically saying, King, you're cool, we love you, we want you to go on. Um, tell me the dream, so to tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation of it. This is where it gets a little dicey, and you have to understand what's going on behind the scenes. So Nebuchadnezzar is about three years into his reign. He was about 25 years old when he came to power. Um, so he's anywhere between 28, 29 years old. He's under 30. Um, he knows that he doesn't have all that he needs to be um, the best king that he needs that he wants to be. He's looking at a um, he's looking at a future reign that's going to hopefully extend beyond him and into the lives of his children and beyond. He's looking at that whole empire um, concept, and he but he knows that an empire is going to be have to be run by the bureaucrats and the administrators under him because his sphere of influence is very small in the sense that there's only a small group of individuals that actually deal with the king directly. Those are the ones that are his advisors. These are the Chaldeans, the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers. These are the guys that he has coming in to see him um, on a regular basis, helping him to administer his kingdom. And he knows that this country was rife with um, with uh, corruption. And he has devised a way um, through this dream to try to figure out who really is worthy of being in his court. Who is the good ones as opposed to the bad advisors? He needs a way to get rid of these guys that are um, that are that are no good. And he he knows that he has to accomplish this, but he it makes it difficult for him to do that. So he is um, he's come across this dream. Now this is where the the translation gets a little dicey for some of you that are reading from the New King James um, or the King James version. You might have something a little different. Um, but it says in, in the New American Standard. It says, the king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will make a rubbish heap or a dung hill. Um, so here we are. The command is firm is the phrase. In the, New America, in the King James Version, it says that the dream has left me. So it leaves people with the idea and the understanding that... Um, that the Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what the dream was. But that's not the way it is. I mean, if you read on, and we will, um, you'll see that um, the advisors did not believe for a second that the king didn't know what the dream was. They keep asking him all the way down to verse 7, hey, what's the dream? We'll tell you. Um, so it's clear that they didn't believe that the, the, that particular that was the case. But the word that's being used here, and this is the problem we have a lot of times with the, with the translations. You have to understand the way the Bible was translated all the way from the beginning. So originally... The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for the book of Daniel, um, which um, uh, a major section of it, including this, was written in Aramaic, um, and then it later on translated into Hebrew. And um, 
before Jesus came on the scene, uh, there was a group of individuals that translated the Bible from the Hebrew into Greek. They call it the Septuagint. In reality, the oldest translation that we have of the Bible, actually the oldest Bible we have, um, is that Greek Bible. It's the exact same Bible that Jesus and his apostles used. It was the same Bible that the first, first two centuries uh, of Christians used. Um, it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew and the Aramaic. And so this particular book has been translated several times, and therefore it makes the uh, translation process difficult for, for folks. Um, and uh, that sort of led to some contentions in some areas. Some areas. So the, the word um, the, for the words being used here is an Aramaic word called azada. And that, that, is, that is strictly Aramaic for firm. Um, it's, an, it's an adjective. It's a descriptor. Um, and so uh, when you're looking at this, you have to know where the language is coming from. So it doesn't say that um, that the command that the, the dream has left me. I don't know what it is. He's saying that my command to you is firm. This is it. I'm not moving uh, any any more on this. If you don't do what I've told you to do, you are going to die. Period. The end. This fits with the context. It fits with the translation and the words that are being used. Um, and of course, we see the the king replied again to the Chaldeans. Um, my my command is firm. You'll be torn limb from limb if you don't do what I want you to do. And then the the Chaldean says, oh, please, just just declare the dream. Again, they don't believe for a second that he doesn't know this dream. He knows that they know he knows it, but he refuses to say it to them because he doesn't want them to give a basic answer. He wants a true accounting, plus he wants to see who in his court is actually capable of serving him in the coming um, coming years. And so um, uh, they ask him for time, and he says, look, if you'll just give me, if you'll just do what I tell you to do, I will reward you beyond imagining. And again, they ask him, they, they, they um, uh, in verse 7, they answered a second time saying, the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And the king says, I know for certain you are bargaining for time. Um, for you, so much you have seen that the command from me is firm. Again, you have that same word, azada. Um, the command from me is firm. Um, they keep asking. They know the king knows the dream. Verse 9, that if you... Um, uh, the command for, again, Nebuchadnezzar continues speaking, verse 9, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, and you have, um, you, for you have agreed together uh, to speak lying, corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Um, and so, of course, the Chaldeans uh, make a, um, a prophetic statement. They don't even realize they're making it. And, and many, uh, many pagan individuals in the, in the past have done this. Um, many people that were outside the will of God have done this. Um, so, you know, like out of the mouth of babes, wisdom is, is, is poured. Um, the Chaldeans answered the king, there is not a man on earth who could declare this matter for the king. And they're absolutely 100% right. And Daniel confirms that when he gets into the scene. But we haven't got to Daniel yet. Um, and so they're just saying, oh, please, king, this is too difficult. Verse 11, we can't handle this. Only the gods can do this. Um, verse 12, because this is the king, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and he gave orders to destroy all the wise men in Babylon. Now, you have to understand that, that what Nebuchadnezzar was proposing to do was completely in his character. This man, as we mentioned last week, um, was known for roasting his officers alive in front of him. Um, he was an incredibly cruel individual who, I don't know if he took pleasure in it, but he definitely knew how to um, uh, reduce the numbers of individuals in front of him that he doesn't like. And um, he had no problem with that. Um, 
But there is also some other things that were going on here because you have to look at what's happening here. They're making these arguments, but there's a lot of things that are sort of beyond behind the scenes that are happening here. Um, why in the world would this be so so nervous? Well, remember, now Dan, or Nebuchadnezzar remembers the dream, and, and we know, because you guys have studied this before, most of you guys have read the dream of Daniel, you know uh, the story of the statue we'll get to in a minute. In the end of the, sta the, the, end of the dream, the statue's feet are destroyed and the statue topples. Um, now, he doesn't have uh, the perspective. He doesn't have the godly interpretation of this. All he sees is a, is a, a giant statue that, in, in his own narcissistic way, probably thought it was a statue of himself. And the statue's feet were destroyed and he toppled over. So any king, especially a new king, who's coming into a situation where all the court intrigue is all there, he's been away conquering. Now he's coming back. He's coming into a situation where he doesn't know who he can trust. And he has a dream of a statue that probably looked a little bit like himself that gets knocked over. I mean, what would, he know, what would any normal human being think at a time like that? Maybe this is a possible um, assassination plot. Maybe there's a coup that's being planned. In fact, a coup actually did occur, and we'll talk about that next week when, they, when we get to it, as the reason why he set that statue up um, in the desert uh, that we'll talk about next week. But um, the point I'm trying to bring up is that there actually was a plot that happened, and, and in these coups or these plots to overthrow a king, a rightful king in this case, um, they normally originate in the ranks of the advisors in the military. And so he's looking at these guys, his, and he has the military strongly behind him. He just led a successful campaign that made the Babylonian Empire what it was to that day. And, and so he had the military behind him for the most part. There were some issues, and we'll get to that next Sunday. Um, but um, he was concerned about his advisors sort of leading or heading a coup. And that was completely consistent with what it is. So he didn't want to tell him the dream. And he needed to have something a little more concrete. Um, this is where it comes to the, enter the Daniel situation. So, he gets angry. He wants him destroyed. And now in verse 13 it says, A decree went out that all the wise men be slain. And so he calls in his chief executioner. A chief executioner. Um, and his chief executioner is Erosh. Um, the word there, king's commander, that really, that word commander is another word in, in the Akkadian language that means executioner. Um, for this reason, um, this is the, what was given to him, for this reason is the decree that the king, um, uh, from the decree is so urgent. Um, and Ariok informed, oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped over verse 14, I apologize. Um, and uh, so, he, they, the, this Ariok guy comes and, and, and uh, goes to carry out the uh, sentence on Daniel. Now, something significant here, and this gives us a little time frame. We know this in the third year of, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Um, we know that Daniel was graduating his um, his uh, training after the third year. Um, scholars were sort of up in the air as to whether or not Daniel actually um, had graduated already or if he was about to graduate. Um, either way, I kind of think that he, had, he was done with the schooling but had yet to have his formal interview with the king. The reason why I say that is because um, uh, the reason why I say that is because Daniel was not included in the wise men that were originally gathered in the king in the king's courtroom. So he had not yet ascended to that group, um, which happened after he was uh, inspected by the king. Um, and we know that the timelines all through the book of Daniel are a little kind of wonky. Um, and we know that, that chapter one was sort of a summation of, of all of Daniel's life, and um, where it focused heavily on the beginning, and then it summed up his life at the end. Um, and so either way, I don't think Daniel had fully graduated yet. 
He was in that limbo spot, as evidenced by the fact that this this um, this executioner had to go find him. Um, and we see that in. Um, uh, uh, in verse 13, it says, When the decree went out, um, they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And Daniel replied with discretion. Here we get Daniel's character he, uh, comes back out, just like we talked to last week, that he replied in three ways. He was polite. He used. Um, he relied on, on God's wisdom and discernment. Um, and he allowed a test of faith to go forward, as we'll see throughout this whole discussion. Um, and Daniel just uh, turned to Ariosh and he said, um, he goes, why? Why is it so important that this is happening? Um, and he again, polite. He's, he's wanting to discuss this. So Daniel went in and requested from the king, verse 16, that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. Finally, somebody showed up that said, wait a minute, king, just give me a little more time. Now, there, honestly, I have no idea why the king agreed to this. Um, he's already gotten angry. He's already furious. He's already got the decree out there, kill everybody. Um, and... I don't, I don't have an answer for you other than the fact that God was completely in control, which happens to be the theme of this entire book, um, that God was in control of this entire situation, and his goal was to make himself magnified in this and to prove to the one of the, the greatest kings that had ever walked the earth that he is truly God of gods and Lord of lords, not the king. And so um, Daniel um, asked and begged for this uh, moment. Daniel then went to his house, and the first thing he did was fall on his face with the face with his friends and pray and they prayed about that matter and this is where they put their they put their their, their faith in God they ask for God's wisdom they seek his wisdom in this um, you know it just goes back to how many times do we do we uh, resort to prayer as a last resort rather than a first you know how many times have we actually sat down and prayed because of something that was going to happen or something that we knew that was going to be bad how many times do we do we fall on our face and, and beg for for prayer. Not as much as we should. Not as much as we should. I'm serious. So, let's move on. Um, their prayer was this, that, that they might request compassion from God, from the God of heaven, concerning this mystery. And here's the thing. So that in verse 18, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. They're not even praying for the rest of the wise men. That's the funny thing about this. They're just praying for themselves. So I mean, I'm not trying to knock Daniel at all. But I mean, you see, I mean, he's just focused on himself and his friends. He's like... You know, these guys are pagan, and obviously God has got some judgment going on. He has used Nebuchadnezzar as a hand of judgment for the nation of Israel. That's already been established by the by the prophets that have gone before. We know that's the case. So it's obvious that God is using Nebuchadnezzar once again to be um, an, uh, an instrument of divine judgment towards these pagan individuals that um, lean on their own understanding and the, the occultic understanding rather than on the understanding of the one true God. And so uh, they're dying praying for just praying that they won't be destroyed along with the rest of them. And that's when the mystery was revealed to Daniel at night in a vision. comes to the title of my sermon today, which is A Dream Within a Dream. Daniel uses a dream to basically interpret a dream. Um, and this is, this is where it's at. Daniel gets this vision. Now, he doesn't know if it's the right one, but he has faith. He has faith that God is in control. And this is where God puts him um, right where he needs him. And he says, we're going to do this, but you've got to trust me. We're going to put your faith in me to the test. How often do we do that? How often do we actually put our faith in the living God? When he says, I want you to go, but yet we don't go. 
I see this all the time in the missionary world. I have a lot of friends that are missionaries, and I've seen a lot of individuals that have started off powerhouses. We're going to go to this country. We're going to go to this place. And, and all we have to do is raise enough support so that we can, we can get there and we can, we can do the ministry God wants us to do. And oftentimes, they'll sit here in America going from church to church saying that same words. And three, four, five, six years down the road, they're still not on the field. They're still going around saying, please, give me what I need to go. Um, one of my favorite missionaries here locally, um, you guys know him. Um, he's preached here for me several times, Jim Boyd. Um, just a powerhouse man of God. This individual, he literally did not even know where he was going to sleep when he got to Alaska. He just knew God was calling him. He called me as he was leaving um, uh, leaving the, the, the border between California and Oregon on his way up here with all of his household goods with no idea where they were going to stay. And he asked, he said, Hey, Al, um, uh, I'm just calling around all the churches to see if anybody has a, a place for my family and I that we can stay um, when we get up here because we're church planters and we feel like God's calling us to the Kenai um, to plant a church. And I'm like... Okay, well, we have a place for you. We just happen to have some beds that we set up downstairs. Come on, we'll get you a place. They lived in our basement for three months, and God continued to bless their ministry, and, and we're still supporting them both financially and, and for, with prayers um, to this very day because, obviously, God has, has his hands on them. Now, that being said, um, as we turn to continue on, remember now, we're, we're, we're moving through this as quickly as we can. Um, Daniel then, um, in verses 20 through 23, just lays down this most beautiful prayer of thanksgiving and praise um, that is in the Bible. It's one of the most amazing prayers. We don't, for the interest of time, have time to read it today, but I encourage you this week to go back and just read that beautiful prayer of thanksgiving and, and see how you can apply that prayer to your own life and the areas that God has blessed you. Um, so therefore, in verse 24, we're going to move ahead. Um, Daniel went in to, um, to Ariel. She said, hey... Um, um, I know it. I, the God, my God has spoken. Don't destroy the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will give the interpretation. So um, Ariosh um, hurriedly uh, uh, went forward um, to do that very thing. And he went into the king's presence and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can uh, make this interpretation known to the king. He jumps right at it. He says, I've got the guy. Right, And then he brings him in there. Daniel is brought before him. Um, and the king says, Hey, Daniel, otherwise known as Belteshazzar, are you able to make known this dream and the interpretation of it? Daniel said to the king, uh, No, I can't. Sorry. That's, and that's my translation of it. He says, As for the mystery in which the king has inquired, um, neither the wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, um, what will take place in the latter days. And this, is, this was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Um, and so basically, he just throws right out there. He goes, I can't do it. No one can do it. Just like the wise men said a little while ago, there's only one person, one individual in all the universe that can. That's the singular God of heaven. Now, we all acknowledge that. We're like, oh yeah, right there. God of heaven. We know it because it's our God, right? Um, but you have to understand, he was in an incredibly pagan and, and, and heathen society. When, when Daniel stepped forward and said, my God is the God of gods. He's the one that's going to be able to make this happen. No one else in the universe can. Guess what? He's also not just saying, my God is good. He's saying all the other gods stink, right? 
And so he's, he's raising the bar. And not just all the other gods. In particular, he's saying not just all the other gods, but all the gods, including the one that you yourself worship, O king. All of them are pale in insignificance in comparison to the God who's going to give you the answer, which is, by the way, my God. And so this was a powerful statement. Right there, the king could have just said, ah, I'm done. I'm not dealing with you anymore. You're out. Right? Um, but he doesn't. He allows him to continue speaking. Uh, continue speaking. Um, and, um, and then Daniel just jumps right into it. You see that um, in verse 29. He says, while you're there, um, you're, you're dreaming a dream of the future. And he's talking again about God. He who reveals mysteries has made known, has made known to you what will take place. You didn't realize that your vision came from God. But as for me, this vision has not been revealed to me from, uh, for any wisdom residing within me. Look at it. It's not in any living person. This interpretation comes only from God in heaven. You, O king, verse 31, were looking, this is the dream, and behold, there is a great statue. There it is, the dream, right? The dream, the great statue. And I'm not going to read all of this. Um, I'm just going to paraphrase this, but you can read it at your leisure later on. Basically, he has a dream. There are four sections to the statue. You have a head of gold. You have the, the arms and chest of, a, um, of silver. You have the waist and the abdomen of uh, bronze. You have the legs of, of iron. And then the final part would be the clay, um, the feet of clay and iron that are mingled. And and, um, and then at the end of this vision, uh, there's this stone that's not cut by the hands of man that sort of rockets out of the middle of a mountain, blasts into the, into, the, into the feet of the statue, toppling the statue over, and then that particular stone becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. And it can be kind of freaky, free, freaky and terrifying. In fact, the words that they used um, there, the, said the word awesome um, that's used to describe this, um, we see that in verse 31, this appearance was awesome. That word in the Hebrew is... Is, um, it means terrifying. Um, it means uh, dreadful. Um, the word is dahal. Dahal. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right. Um, but it just means terrible, terrifying. It means dreadful. It was. It was something that that, that caused great uh, rumbling. Um, but at the same time, was also something to be uh, to um, to be, be looked at as to be truly awesome, um, to be amazing, if you will. And so um, we get that in that that idea idea is Daniel sort of lays this out um, and he gives him the dream right and then he then then it comes to the interpretation and verse 36 says this was the dream now we shall give you its interpretation before the king now a lot of people wonder what this we means it's definitely a plural it's in it's in all it's in the translation it's what it should be he says we will give you the translation some people make the the, the assumption that Shadrach Meshach Abednego or their Hebrew names Hananiah Mishael and Azariah were there in the courtroom with them but there's no indication that was the case in fact uh, more than likely they weren't um, because in the end, Daniel, at the end of this dream, Daniel actually nominates them for positions of authority that come about later on. Um, but either way, uh, we see clearly that um, uh, that this we was was almost in, almost certainly talking about God and Daniel. So Daniel's fully immersed in the Holy Spirit, fully immersed in God right now. He's just he's just pouring out the things and the words of God to this king. He says, you, O king, may be the king of kings, but here's something you need to know. The God of heaven has given this kingdom to you. 
The kingdom you have has come to you. This, all the power and strength um, has come to you from the God of heaven, my God. And he says, And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the sky, he has given them under your hand, and he and has caused you to rule over them all. Basically, the, the, the central theme in this book is, is pronounced yet again, that God is the ultimate controller. This is something we need to rest on, because I mean, we're in some very tumultuous times, and we're going to get to that near the end of this. And I know our time is marching away from us. I'm going to do my best to try to get this down quickly. Um, but you have to understand... That while um, uh, while this is is uh, a tumultuous time, we got November is coming up. The election is happening. It happens every four years. We've got two individuals that are um, they're diametrically opposed. Both of them have two different views of of how America should be. And we, the people, um, we have a choice. We can vote. Those of us in Alaska, we know that our vote may mean something. But in the end, we are the last people in the country to vote. And by the time it gets to us, usually the winner has already. Been been pronounced. And so we'll do our civic duty, obviously, to vote, but the reality is we've got two individuals that have two different thoughts and ideas, and everybody says, well, I hope God gives us the right man. Well, here's the thing, is God's going to give us the right man, whoever it is. And whoever wins, whether it's the Democrat or Republican candidate, or even somebody that, that we didn't even imagine, um, whoever wins the election, it's the person that God wanted to win. God is, 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 is in control of every single thing that happens in this world. And nothing happens that is apart from his knowledge, his will, or his plan for the future. And I can tell you this, God knows what's going to happen, and he's already chosen who's going to win. We have to have faith. We need to do what, we are, uh, what our conscience dictates. Um, but we have to have faith in the end, God is going to work this out. Um, that being said, uh, we want to continue on. Uh, we know that while the central theme is that God is in complete control, we also know um, that this interpretation is dealing with some things that have already happened and some things that have yet to happen. Same thing that was going on in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. There were some things in this dream that had already happened, such as the interpretation. Um, Daniel tells him that the, this, this is four kings, uh, kingdoms, um, and the, the first kingdom is the gold kingdom, which is which represents you as being the greatest kingdom, and then each kingdom that comes after that is slightly inferior. Now, that's kind of always made me question this a little bit, because um, this golden head that was the smallest of all of the kingdoms, um, and, and if you even look just smallest in the fact that it was, um, it just didn't reign as long. Where the, the Babylonian kingdom was only there for like 66 years. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire that came after that was there for 208 years. Um, the bronze, or the, or the Greek one, that came after that, which was ruled for 185 years. Um, and then the iron one, which we all um, acknowledge represents the um, uh, the uh, the Roman Empire, it lasted for almost for over 500 years. And so, what makes what makes all these other kingdoms inferior? I think what makes them inferior is the fact that, and most theologians that are commentators in this uh, will agree with me on this. What makes them inferior is not the length of their ruling, it's not the wealth of their people, it's their moral decline. There's a level of moral decline that brings them to a lesser place to the point where you get to Rome. And Rome was proud of the fact that they destroyed, utterly destroyed individuals. And so you get that, that idea that this there was definitely a degradation of, of the moral and, 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 and just the integrity of the nations um, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And um, 
So that being said, we see the inferior nature of it, um, and it goes all the way down to the final one, which is, and you do notice where it talks about the iron um, crushes and shatters all things, iron breaks to pieces, again referring to the Roman Empire. Um, in the end, you saw in verse 41, it talks about the feet and the toes. Um, this is the part, I think, that gets a little interesting, because um, obviously some of these nations have existed. And I could go through and describe them to you. Those of you that have been through Sunday school classes and, and have learned this in the past, you probably recognize that, as we said, um, the, 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 the head, the golden head, represented um, the Babylonian Empire. Daniel says that. The next kingdom that comes after that is the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, it lasted for 208 years, as we mentioned, and it was lesser, but it was still pretty broad. Um, and that represented by the arms that are sort of crossed, if that's the case, and the chest and the arms. Um, the one that comes after that is the belly and the, the loins of bronze. Um, and this ref makes reference to Alexander the Great as he began his nation, conquered the world. In fact, when he was 30 years old, he, he, he stuck his sword in the sand and cried because he had conquered everything there was to conquer. And then anything left to conquer. He just sort of ran out of steam, if you will. Most people believe that, the, uh, uh, that Alexander died of a broken heart because there was nothing left to conquer. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, he definitely died young, and um, his kingdom was divided up. Um, but either way, it doesn't matter. Um, this scripture was definitely referring to um, the Greek Empire. And then you come to the Roman one, which we mentioned before. And the Roman Empire didn't really collapse so much as it was just sort of pulled apart in pieces um, and eventually sort of collapsed by its own weight. Um, but it comes to the final one. This is the area that so many people love to fight about. Um, verse 41. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay in the in the um, uh, in the King James says miry clay um, and partly of iron. Um, it will be divided. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes and the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, and will combine. Um, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with. Pottery. Now I'm going to stop it there for a second because we need to we need to just get them seeing some ground rules here. Um, we don't know what this means, okay? And so I'm going to give you my own thoughts on this, and you can take it what you will. You don't have to agree, and I'm not going to say I'm completely right in this. But I've heard it said all the time, all growing up, and, and in seminary, and, and listening to the preachers that have been preaching. Every one of them said that America is not represented in Scripture, um, in the prophetic calendar. So, and they say that, and they always they always follow it up and saying that because it's not mentioned, that means there's no guarantee that America will be here when when this all happens. And I don't disagree with that at all, except for the fact um, that the part where it says that they don't think that America is mentioned in Scripture. I think America is. And I think that as you read through this, and we get to chapter 7 in the book of Daniel, where it has another vision that Daniel points out, I will point out some other areas where I think America is in existence in Scripture. And I really feel like that in many ways, this final empire, the one that's made of, 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 of clay and steel, or iron, um, is representative. It talks about being strong yet fragile. Um, it was sort of brought out to me in my own mind I think God really brought this to me when I was during um, the time of 9-11 um, we just celebrated the anniversary um, uh, last week 
Um, but in my mind, this is what I see. I see that whenever you're pouring concrete, which you know is, is a type of clay, um, and miry clay, where you mix these base elements together, you put them together, you put, you put rebar, steel in it to make it strong, but yet we build these huge high-rises, and they're strong and they're powerful, but yet they weren't strong enough to withstand a strike that brought them down all the way to the bottom. So I, I just, in my mind, I'm seeing this image of the towers falling and very similar to what I see in this, in this image that Daniel has. Not, I'm not saying that, that Daniel was talking about the destruction of the Twin Towers in this. I'm not at all. I'm just, I'm just looking at this and, and seeing parallels of our own culture today and what Daniel is talking about. I really feel like that we are in the final days and this is the final kingdom, and this is what we're dealing with. And the reason why I feel that way is because look what it says about these um, uh, about these things. It says the toes were partly of iron and partly of pottery. That means some of the toes were strong and some of the toes were not as strong. Um, there are ten toes usually in a, on, a, on a normal human being. And um, so we're talking about ten different nations. Let's think about this for a minute. How many nations do we have on the planet that are powerful? Let's just think about that just for a second. Well, the top 10 nations right now, according to the internet, is the U.S., China, Russia, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Japan, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and South Korea. Can anybody think of a nation that's, that's powerful that wasn't on that list? Think of those ten toes. Think of some of those nations are more powerful than others. Some are stronger than others. Some like the top three are probably the, the iron toes. The ones at the bottom are probably more the pottery toes. But here's something that's kind of interesting is that what, and this is all sort of, we're all sort of the same economic mesh. We're all connected. When America or China starts to have issues in their economy, the rest of the world suffers too. So I really feel like there's a connectiveness there even though it's not one nation, right? And it goes on to say, I mean, in that some of, some of the iron was mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. Now we're talking about people, right? And they will not adhere to one another. So there's going to be a disconnect in the, in the group of people. There's going to be groups of individuals that are going to maybe be in the same nation, but they will, they'll never really be mixed together. They will continually be divided. They will never be united. They will have separate cultures, separate national identities. They won't be truly united. All you have to do is turn on the nightly news and see the differing opinions in our own nation, let alone the other ones around the globe. That we are such a divided and divisive people. We're not connected. Even though we call ourselves Americans, what does that mean? Even in our own nation, even in this state, we have Native Americans, we have American Americans. I don't know what that means. We have, we have African Americans, we have Indian Americans, we have, um, um, we have uh, you know, uh, Asian Americans. We've got all different types of Americans, but they still want to maintain their own national identity. We're not unified. We're not connected. You know, I really feel like in many ways this scripture is talking about right now. It says, in those days, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. This is the point right here. This is the point that we can take comfort in, right? He says, in those days, in these days, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. He's talking about his kingdom is going to come. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the first coming where he laid the groundwork that we might be able to be called the sons of God. Now he's talking about that second coming where he's going to come in. He's going to smash all of this away. And we're no longer 
longer going to be Americans or, 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 or Germans. We're no longer going to be African Americans or, 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 um, or Asian Americans or Irish Americans. We're going to be Christians or not Christians. We're going to be followers and, and, and children of God or not. Um, and that's where we're at. So in as much as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain, look what it says. Um, it will, this kingdom will endure forever. This stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, that we know that's Jesus. Um, that, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And the great God is made known to the king that it will take place in the future so that the dreams and, and it, so the dream is a true it is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. This is the end, right? That, that stone that becomes a mountain that covers the whole world. We're talking about the kingdom of God. We know that's coming. This particular passage is an incredibly comforting passage. In this world that we're currently living in where, where we have injustice, wars, crime, um, it is reassuring to know that Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes, all the evils of the present age that we all moan and complain about, but none of us have any real answers for other than Jesus Christ, they will all be put aside and only he will be um, will reign supreme there is indeed coming a day when the, all the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea just as the prophet Habakkuk said in chapter 2 verse 14 for the Messiah's reign will, will be a reign of righteousness and will extend throughout all the universe this is what we have to look forward to so this passage ought to bring us comfort in the days of the tumultuous times that we're living in now we should rest in the comfort for that Jesus is in control. Now, the end of this is just uh, we're dealing with the promotion of Daniel. Um, I'm not going to read this. Um, basically, Nebuchadnezzar's like, dude, you got it right. That's my dream. And the interpretation, um, I, I, have to, I have to accept the fact that because you knew the dream so exactly, that the interpretation it must be the same. Therefore, you are the guy. I'm going to promote you up. And I'm going to make you um, I'm going to make you the individual. But he also says something else here. He says in verse 47, Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He is the revealer of mysteries. And since you've been able to reveal this mystery to me, um, I'm going to promote you, Daniel, to the highest office. And this is the part that just sets the groundwork for all the problems in Daniel's life at this point on. Not that he didn't already have problems to begin with, but he has a whole lot more coming up after this. He basically tells Daniel that you are going to be my chief of staff which, by the way, was a hereditary position that was passed down from generation to generation. And the individual he was dispossessing, he was taking the position of, just lost an incredible amount of honor in a culture where if you have honor removed from you, the only way to get that honor back is to have that person killed. So now Daniel just has a bullseye on the back of his, um, uh, back of his chest by all the people he just jumped ahead of the line for. Um, and look what else he says. He says that he's going to make him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Basically, not only did he set him up as the chief of staff, the chief of state, the secretary of state, the head, the, basically the second guy in command over the whole empire, he answerable only to the king, but then he sets his steps a little further and he says, I'm also going to make you head over the hereditary position of the chief of the Chaldeans, which again was a was like a mystical order of, of priesthood kind of individuals that... Um, was hereditary and now he's got doubly hit 
with a double bullseye because now you've got two entire groups of people that want him killed. But Daniel, knowing that this was the case, knowing that he just stepped into a hornet's nest of, of, of corruption and, and, and intrigue, he says, by the way, king, I've got these three friends of mine. Um, you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know them as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azaria. We'll get into that next week. Um, but uh, these guys are great guys. They've been with me through this whole time. If you really want me to do this, I need you to promote these guys too. They will help me make your empire as great as it can be. And therefore, the swamp was drained. Daniel and his three friends were elevated to positions of authority and power. And Nebuchadnezzar was given a kingdom um, that was going to extend beyond his lifespan. And this is a powerful moment in the, in the nation, this particular nation, and in this storyline. We're coming to the end, so we have to ask ourselves the infamous questions of, so what? So what? What does this mean to us? Well, there's a lot. I've, I've said a lot. I've gone through a whole lot. In fact, I've probably taken way too much time to say what I had to say. But I think it really comes back down to this, is that we need to be more like Daniel in how we interact and how we deal with lives. Daniel encountered problems, and he responded with politeness and discernment. He rested in the knowledge and the will of God. And then he allowed his faith to be tested. We said that last week. Those are the three ways we respond. The other thing you wanted, we want to look at is we need to look at this, um, as I mentioned before, this passage talking about the kingdom that will not end, the one that will be an everlasting kingdom that's indestructible. And we need to ask ourselves, can we truly be part of this indestructible kingdom? If you are a follower of the living God, if you have bowed your knee in repentance in your heart and your will before a holy God, and you have, you, have, you have humbly asked that God would enter into your life and make you His, and you truly are a child of God, you are in that indestructible kingdom that will never end. You have that position locked in. If you have not done that, you need to. The Bible talks about us, um, uh, we have to be born again. This illusion of baptism. He talks. The Bible talks about um, that we have to we have to know that we are part of that kingdom because when we get in those final days and we stand before God and we say, "Hey God, I love you," and He's and He's gonna look at us and say, "I don't know you." And so we have to be cautious about it. Jesus warns about that throughout his, um, throughout his parables. Um, and we need to recognize that there is only one true God. God has laid the commandments out to us. Therefore, if we are truly obedient to the gospel and we are following in his plan, then we can rest in the knowledge that he has it all in his hands. He is in control regardless who becomes president in a, in a few months. We know he has it in his hands. If we are obedient to the gospel, as he says in the book of Romans, we will remain remain faithful and diligent in our, in our walk with him, and we will experience a future where the glorious kingdom will never be destroyed. That is a fact. If you can't say that, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, if you've never bowed your will before him and a holy God um, and asked him to come in your heart, you can do that now. Those of you that are watching at home, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I implore you with every, with every fiber of my being, don't stop this day. Don't end this time without reaching out to someone who you know knows the truth. There are several people that are in the, um, that are in the feed that are watching it that would be more than happy to answer the questions of salvation to you. There are those of us that are here that you can, you can private message um, uh, the Facebook page and it will get to me and I will definitely reach out to you. We want you to know that there is a path for you to find 
freedom, hope, and salvation if you want it. Um, if you are looking for that comfort. For the rest of us, we have to rest in the hope. Let's be like Daniel. Respond to crises the way Daniel did, with politeness, with discernment, with a willingness to have our faith tested in times of trouble. And let's move forward. Those of you that know him, you know what to do. Those of you that don't know him, you also know what to do, because I've told you, you need to get your heart right today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't let the sun set without getting your heart right with him. We're going to go ahead and pray. Those of you that are watching online, um, we're, going to have a, uh, we're going to have our invitation when the song is done. The service will be over for you, and we, we thank you for joining us. Um, for the rest of us, we're going to have a quick business meeting afterwards, so please stick close, um, and then we'll move to Sunday school. So let's go ahead and bow with me, if you will, and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the day you've given us. Lord, I know that, that I've gone rapid fire through this. And I know that those people that are watching at home um, can have the privilege to be able to, to, to stop it and rewind it and, and play it again. But for those of us, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Lord, I just ask that you give us the, um, all the wisdom we need and the takeaways we need, that we can stand firm in this present time of turmoil and trouble and know that you have a plan. Father, if there's anyone in here under the sound of my voice, either here or on the, on the, um, the feed at home, that doesn't know you, Father, we ask that you will give them the, um, the desire to come to know you today, that they might be firmly rooted in your will, your heart, and your soul, that they may always know from this day forward whom they serve. Father, I ask that you give us the courage and strength to be your hands and feet in this community and to bring your image and your hope to those that need it. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand as the altar is open and we invite you to come.